talk about it as if you understand it at all. And that subject is childbirth. Somebody said women. Well, pretty much a close second. There are things in life you just have to realize that you know nothing about. And to claim to know something about it is to demonstrate your ignorance, right? You know, open mouth, remove all doubt, that kind of thing. Well, there's a, there's a scene from The Simpsons. Yes, I'm about to tell you about a scene from The Simpsons. Where they're waiting for their youngest, they have three kids, their youngest Maggie to talk. And, and, and the mom, Marge, says, oh, Maggie, when are you going to talk? Well, she says something like, oh, Maggie, when are you going to talk? that weird voice, the five of you who have seen The Simpsons. So they're waiting for their youngest to talk. And then Lisa, the middle child, who is always the voice of wisdom, says, don't push her, mom. Remember, it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. And here's what happens. (laughs) Homer, the dad, you see him off to the side watching this whole thing, and his brain starts saying, what does that mean? Better say something or they'll think you're stupid. And so then he blurts out, takes one to no one. Men, if your brain begins suggesting that you should have something meaningful and important and insightful to say about childbirth, remember Homer Simpson's brain. For all involved, suppress those thoughts. We have a saying on staff that a few of us say here and there, which is you don't know what you don't know. In fact, you can't know what you don't know. You can't know what you can't No, childbirth is like that for a man. It just straight up is. You don't go there because you can't know what you can't know. Open your mouth and have your own Homer Simpson moment if you'd like to, but you'll experience what it's like to not know what you don't know. You can't know childbirth until you go through and experience childbirth. It's the same for a follower of Jesus. You can't know Christ until you've begun to experience what Christ experienced. You want to know Christ? (laughs) Experience what he experienced. This isn't just an intellectual exercise of knowledge about the facts of who Jesus was and what he came to do. The Gospel of Mark won't let us stay there with it. The Gospels demand that we enter into the experience of Jesus and walk on the road with Him. That's how you learn who Christ was and what He really did for you. There's there's just not another better, easier way. And and in this scene here, uh, Jesus is leading His disciples toward Jerusalem. And a couple of them think they know where they're headed. But they can't know what they can't know. When Jesus tells them what following him would involve and and, and asks and asks if they can handle it, they say, "Oh, we're able. We're able." James and John have a Homer Simpson moment where they open their mouths and, and remove all doubt about their knowledge of where they're headed and what's involved here. Jump in at Mark 10. Verse 32 here. This is great stuff here. 
We're going to spend a little bit more time on the front end here because Mark, uh, Mark summarizes a lot of this idea of metaphor at the beginning here. And just this, this first phrase in, in 32, it says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Now Jesus and his disciples have been, quote, on the road to Jerusalem for the last few weeks of our series. The phrase on the road or on the way or some variation of it occurs nine times in chapters 8 through 12. Nine times in five chapters. And Mark wants it here to be clear that Jesus and the disciples are headed somewhere. And he finally tells us where exactly they're headed. He says the word Jerusalem here and explicitly mentions it in 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem for the first time in all of Mark. Mentions it as Jesus' ultimate destination. But Mark mentions Jerusalem not so much because we need to know Jesus' destination geographically, but because we need to know that Jesus is headed toward his death. He is headed toward the cross where he is going to die for the sins of the world. 1 John 2.2 2. Now, check this out. I used to think that the gospel writers always wrote of going up. They would often say going up to Jerusalem simply for geographical reasons, which is true. From all directions, you go up to Jerusalem. In other words, it's on a hill, so you're always going up there no matter what direction you're coming from. But as Mark makes plain here, he doesn't merely include this detail of going up to Jerusalem for geography. He intends for us to read this as a metaphor for the Christian life, which is to say this. When you are on the road with Jesus, you are always going toward a place that ends in your death. This is just a truth about, ironically, the Christian life. When you are on the road with Jesus, you are always going toward a place that ends in your death. Mark 8.34, a couple weeks ago, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you're not going toward a place that ends in your death, then you don't know what you don't know. If you're not going toward a place that ends in your death and you are on a road that keeps your life's purposes intact, then you are on a different road than the Jesus road. The lesson of Mark in these chapters is that if you want to have Jesus in you, if you want to follow Jesus, then you must die. Discipleship always involves, it doesn't ever not involve, death to self. Always it involves death to self. So here at the beginning of this account in Mark 10, Mark wraps up a bunch of context that he's been talking about in Mark. I hope some of you are reading Mark throughout these weeks because when I say things like this, it'll trigger and you'll go, yeah, I, I get that. He's wrapping up a bunch of context in Mark here. At the beginning of 32 here, he says, 
Basically, what he wants us to hear is this. They were following Jesus all the way to their death. I, I realize it says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. But what he means by, the, by, by saying that is they were following Jesus all the way to death, his and theirs. And they're beginning to get that picture. They couldn't know it till they got there. They couldn't know it till they saw it, but they were beginning to get that picture. But here's the thing. That's a bit scary. We all understand, if we understand the consequences of what Jesus has called us to, that death to self means letting go of some things that you, that you like. <laughs> we all get that. So it's a little bit of a scary prospect. Let's acknowledge that up front. But here's the thing about that. Next phrase, verse 32. Jesus was walking ahead of them. Hold on to this, believers. Jesus was walking ahead of them. Following Jesus all the way to death is obviously a, a tall order. Yes, it's obviously a tall order. Uh, but do not ever forget that Jesus always walks ahead of us. He goes first. He's already paved the way. He's done this before us. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that in Jesus we have a high priest who walked this way for us, who walked the road we walk, and yet he did so, unlike us, without sin, so that we can draw near to God in confidence, Hebrews tells us. Pretty much the whole book, Hebrews 4.15, there's a good example of that. So Jesus' life on that road to death worked for our life. You can do this because he did do this. Meaning, meaning we can continue to walk into the dying to self thing because he was perfect and sinless. And we can know that whatever the skirmishes along the way, whatever the hard parts of that death to self road that we are on, whatever parts of that hurt, whatever you have to get rid of that you don't want to, whatever you have to lose in that is always actually gain because Jesus' death already works to save you because he's the one leading. So if we are following the Son of God whose death gave us life, we'll be just fine whatever the circumstances are. So dying to self may seem like a scary prospect, and in a sense it really is because it costs. We can rest assured that we are never actually alone on this road of death to self. So I'm going to start moving a little bit faster. Verse 32 here again. They were following Jesus all the way to his death and their death, and Jesus is leading the way, and it says, And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. They're amazed because they knew that Jesus was, was resolved. He was resolute in his direction to walk right into death and to suffering. But they were afraid, just like we are, because following Jesus was going to mean conflict for them. And they were beginning to get the picture that they were also walking into Jerusalem, into their own death. Into their own death. So, <laughs> because Jesus knows that they didn't know what they couldn't know, he again begins to teach them. He tells them what's going to happen. So at least they could know some of what they didn't know before they would know. If you followed that, something's wrong with you. Verse 32, taking the twelve again, because he had told them this same thing twice before, this is the third time in as many chapters, taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. But notice that Jesus includes them in this. Look at verse 33, saying, See, we, 
This isn't just a Jesus-only thing. This is a we thing. We are going up to Jerusalem. And then he recounts again what's going to happen to him specifically. It says, And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, the Jewish religious authorities, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, who are the non-Jewish political authorities. Verse 34, And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. All four of those mentioned there, mockery, spitting, uh, flogging, which is uh, whipping or scourging, uh, and death. All four of those are predicted in what we call the suffering servant passages uh, in a a few places, primarily in Isaiah. And and in saying those and naming those four things, Jesus is consciously saying, I am the suffering servant predicted in the Old Testament. I am that son of man. And then he says, after all of that, After three days, he, the Son of Man, will rise. After three days, he will rise. Now, (laughs) we would much rather follow Jesus straight to the being risen part without the death part. And friends, it's real easy to shape our lives this side of eternity to sort of functionally skip over the death part. But listen, friends, take this to the bank. You do not become a fruitful follower of Jesus whose life is powerfully used for the kingdom by avoiding the death to self part. It's not how this works. You do not become the fruitful follower of Jesus that he intends for you to be whose life is powerfully used for kingdom work by avoiding the death to self part. That's just not how this works. We have got to get this if we are going to live fruitful Christian lives. You don't skip over this part. You don't become a kingdom contributor on your own terms of not death to self. Things that are risen have to die first. That's just how this works. So this process of death to self was something that the disciples hadn't quite gotten yet. It was in that category of they they, they couldn't know it yet. They were still grasping for something like a safe road to greatness. (laughs) Your best life now. How in the world can you use all your resources to ensure that we divert on this Jesus path to to have to go around that that death part? Because I'd really rather not. I mean, let's be real about how we use our life's resources often. We're sort of wanting to avoid as much as possible that death to self part. Which means we're acting a lot like those disciples who are going for a road of greatness. And James and John demonstrate this here. Mark begins uh, by mentioning here, at the beginning of 35, begins by mentioning James and John, the sons of of Zebedee, it says. Now, remember from last week that James and John, uh, along with Peter, are part of Jesus' inner circle of three. 
that inner circle sort of got first dibs on certain things like, like last week. They got to be a part of the transfiguration there, uh, a couple or a few, depending on how you count, a few places where the inner circle of three sort of got uh, the inside track with Jesus first. They were sort of the leaders of the 12 disciples. And early on in Jesus' ministry, he gave James and John a nickname. Uh, it's Boanerges. It's a word that means sons of thunder. He called them sons of thunder, which suggests that they were probably uh, loud, uh, bombastic, probably a little hot-headed, probably hot-tempered. Uh, and th- there's one incident in Luke 9:54 where Jesus goes to this village, and the people in that village rejected him. And so James and John are like, hey, Lord, you want us to go ahead and tell fire to rain down from heaven and consume this village? Uh, so James and John, you know, sort of come by their nickname, honestly, and Jesus says, whoa, chill out, Spaz. Let's, let's chill out with the praying, praying fire down on heaven part. It's not your gig. <laughs> let's calm down, sons of thunder. So they came by this nickname sort of honestly, and... Uh, So they came up to him, these two, the sons of thunder, come up to Jesus, and they say this in verse 35, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. They're asking because they think that Jesus' death was about restoring the glory of the temple and the political fortunes of the people of Israel. So they say, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. They're sort of bucking for promotion in this new kingdom. And he said to them, verse 36, What do you want me to do for you? Jesus is gracious in his response. I would have said, What am I, a like great genie to you? And he is gracious and says, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, verse 37, Grant to us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left, the positions of power, in your glory. And if this feels a little like deja vu, it should, because last week the disciples uh, were arguing about who was the greatest. They were arguing among themselves about who was the greatest. And here James and John are sort of bucking for promotion uh, in what they perceive to be a new kingdom of earthly power where they could be great, where they could have a smooth and easy road. They could have an avoid the death to self road here and so jesus said to them verse 38 you do not know what you are asking i hear this from jesus as a as a gentle rebuke oh sons of thunder you don't even know what you don't know kind of what jesus is saying this is sort of their homer simpson moment this is their they should have kept quiet about the childbirth moment And so Jesus asks them, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Quickly, two things. To share someone's cup was a recognized expression for sharing one's fate, sharing in the suffering of someone else. Second thing, to be baptized is to be submersed into death. By the way, not sprinkled upon or poured upon to death, but submersed into death. So he's basically saying, are you able to suffer and to die like me? And they say, removing all doubt here, we are able. (laughs) Simply put, yes. What? What? As if that earlier, you know, 
open mouth and remove all doubt kind of moment wasn't enough. They say, we're able. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're able. And Jesus says, Jesus says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. Oh, you're going to suffer, but you can't possibly understand how yet. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. You're going to die, but you can't possibly understand how yet. But, verse 40, to sit at my right hand or my left, the positions of power, is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. Only God the Father does that. And when the ten, because the two were there, the ten surrounding them heard this, verse 41, they began to be indignant, annoyed at James and John. I would be too if James and John are trying to pull him aside and say, hey, give us powerful positions. And so again at that moment, Jesus teaches them. Look at verse 42. 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their, quote, great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. What a great statement that is. It shall not be so among you. Which is to say, following me, Jesus is saying, following me involves different priorities and powers than the world. It shall not be so among you. Greatness doesn't mean what you think it means, but whoever would be great, in other words, this is a a great that doesn't have quotes around it, the, the great ones who lorded over the Gentiles are one thing, but he says, real greatness, whoever would be actually truly great among you, verse 43, must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. In that society there, in Greco-Roman society, uh, humility was considered uh, the lowest, the least important virtue of all the virtues. They understood that there was some virtue in it, but it was the least uh, virtuous. So Jesus is saying that the lowest considered by the world is actually the greatest. Uh, humility and servanthood is what defines greatness. And, and even Jesus, of course, does this, verse 45, stated as a principle. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus shows that greatness comes through service. In order to serve, you must die to self. That's just how this works in the kingdom. In order to serve, you must die to self. So kingdom greatness, kingdom power, that which glorifies God comes through serving. And serving can only happen after you've died to self. So friends, if you're not drinking the cup, you are still trying to follow Jesus to a party of your own design instead of Jerusalem. The process of being fruitful, the process of rising from death, it's not a one-time thing. It's a, it's a way of life for the follower of Jesus. This death to self thing, this taking up the cross daily thing, is how we rise to become fruitful. Now, but here's, here's the problem in this. <laughs> uh, even for long-time followers of Jesus, and I state what I'm about to state for myself too, Many are um, 
stuck in a life of following after people other than Jesus and other expectations, which makes sense. I get it. Many of us are still sort of stuck in a life of following after a mom or a dad um, to whom we want to, you know, justify ourselves and, and, and make ourselves worthy. Many of us are still stuck in a life of following a mom, a dad, a friend, a celebrity, someone to whom we, we look up. Many of us are still stuck in a life of following after other people and other expectations, which means we are functionally following them even more than we may know or be aware. Everybody tracking, right? Which is to say, before we move on, human beings are only worth following insofar as they follow Jesus with integrity and they point to him as the true leader. So be careful. Be careful following someone other than Jesus. Now listen. Even for long-time followers, everybody at this point agrees with everything I've said so far. (laughs) Yay, Jesus. Follow only Jesus. Don't follow others around. Don't follow a spouse, a mom, a dad, a co-worker, a boss, a friend, anybody around you, a celebrity, somebody you look up to. Don't follow those conceptions of what your life's about. And at this point, everybody agrees with with me. Yay, Jesus. Follow only Jesus. Jesus. But let me throw in another wrinkle. There is someone else we follow often without knowing it and often without admitting it out loud. It's real easy for us to say, of course we shouldn't follow anyone other than Jesus. Yea, Jesus, follow only Jesus. But still, on the inside, we continue to believe a lie we tell ourselves that we alone have it all right and everyone else is wrong. This may sound a little crazy at first, a little silly to say, but upon first hearing it, some of you will dismiss it out of hand perhaps, but I think it's way more true than we care to admit. When we constantly point at everyone else's frailties and sins and failings and failures and shortcomings when the way that we think about the world is everybody else has the problem and we get used to constantly criticizing everyone else we will become blind to our own failures which means that we secretly believe that we alone have it all figured out And everyone else is wrong. Which means we actually function in here as if we alone are trustworthy. And so it's easy for us to cry on the outside, follow no one but Jesus. Follow no one but Jesus. While we are simultaneously declaring on the inside in a louder voice that drowns out all others. I follow me because I trust no one. That's where a lot of us really actually are. I follow me because I trust no one. And there's a Bible word for it. And the word is pride. 
And that's what pride lies to us about. I function as if I follow only me because I trust no one. Which is to say, some of the truth about why we struggle in following Jesus with all of our hearts and all of our resources might not be everyone else's failure as we like to tell the story. (laughs) But in our own pride, our own lack of recognition, in our failings. Listen, friends, (laughs) here's the problem. And I'm going to throw us all under the bus here. (laughs) Here's the problem with self-centered, rich American Christians like us who become comfortable with a lifestyle of ease and hoarding security. Pride will always filter out personal suffering as a godly option. You could take that to the bank. Our pride will always filter out Christ-like death to self going up to Jerusalem suffering. It'll filter it out as an option. Because when we know that following Jesus means suffering, which one of these voices is most passionately followed? The voice of self that says, do what is easy and safe. Or the voice of Jesus that says, come with me to Jerusalem. You want to know Jesus? Walk with Him. Do you really want to know Christ? Take up His cross. Do you want to know who Jesus really was and what He really did for you? Then share the burden. Pick up the cross. Drink the cup. Be baptized. That's what makes us fruitful for kingdom work. You've got to die before you will live. And that's not one time. That's every day. You cannot follow Jesus without taking up his cross. You cannot follow Jesus without taking up his cross. Let's pray, friends.